Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the book of 2 Samuel and the first part of 1 Kings. Yeah, it, this, this particular lesson covers a, a wide swath of time and some really, really important elements that are going to come into play. So let's just uh, get the landscape in an overview setting really, really quickly first. Remember, we came from a rule of judges. Then they wanted a king last week's lesson, to be like all other nations, so we got Saul. In this lesson today, we're going to start out with Saul and Jonathan, his son, being being killed in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. He'll be replaced by King David, who will then be replaced by his son, Solomon, who will then have some amazing experiences building the temple, building up the kingdom of Israel like never before, but pride goeth before the fall, and we end up with a split in the family. A highly significant event here when you get Solomon's son Rehoboam taking over, Rehoboam, and the kingdoms up north follow Jeroboam and split off, so for the first time ever you're going to get the ten tribes up north the two tribes down south with this split family, not terribly unlike the idea of Nephites-Lamanites, where there's this split and then they become enemies. And so you're going to get multiple kings, multiple prophets up north, and you're going to get multiple kings and multiple prophets down in the south, and many, many years pass. And then, after, after centuries, people come back and put these stories together for us in the Bible. So think about the Book of Mormon. Mormon has access to all these records of hundreds of years of Nephite history, and under divine inspiration and guidance, he puts them together and provides a narrative trying to account for how did his civilization or his, his people get to where they're at, and what happened to the people based on the promises and covenants God had made and that they had made, and how well did they do fulfilling those covenants, those promises, what were the consequences? So in some ways, now we don't know who all the authors are and the editors of these texts, but in some ways it's a bit like Mormon, where they have the benefit of hindsight and they're looking through all this very messy history, very real lives. And just remember, when you enter into the Bible, you're entering into a foreign country. They do things differently there. And so these editors are trying to account for what happens to the people after these incredible promises to David and to the people in general. And what we see is this pride cycle, the people often failing to follow God's commands, his covenantal instructions, and so God having to, well, nudge them with some less than pleasant experiences to the point that eventually, because they have broken the covenant, they have been disloyal to God, they have cheated on him, he is the landlord, he's like, you can't live in peace and prosperity in the land if you don't co live covenantally loyal to me, so I'm going to send you away. So the ten northern tribes around 722 BC 
get conquered by the Assyrians and they're lost to history. That's why they're called the Lost Tribes. And part of modern day missionary work is let's regather scattered Israel. And this is actually called the Kingdom of Israel before they get conquered. And then in the south, you have the Kingdom of Judah. And they endured for about another 120 years. Lehi was living down here. And they leave, and then the Book of Mormon begins. So this is how it all connects to the Book of Mormon, but also even conceptually, you have these later writers and editors, guys like, like Mormon for the Book of Mormon, but unnamed editors for the scriptures that we have in the Old Testament, trying to account for what happens when people live God's commands and when they don't. And ultimately, the hope is that we can vicariously learn from their experiences so we don't have to repeat these things. As the Book of Mormon says, that we can learn to be more wise than they. It's a beautiful insight, this idea of <clears throat> let's not repeat that history. And if you could boil it down to its essence, in my mind at least, it's a story of, in this pride cycle, of people repeatedly turning away from God and rejecting his prophets and thinking, no, we, we're going to look to other sources to save us, like Egypt or our, the strength of our army or the strength of our wisdom or our strong walls to protect our cities, and at the end of the day, none of those things are going to uh, save them from destruction and from being carried into bondage. So in last week's lesson of Come Follow Me, we were fully in this story of Saul. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul and, Dave, uh, Saul and Jonathan, his son, are both killed, along with others in his family and in his kingdom, they're killed, which then leaves his one of his sons named Ish-bosheth, who then tries to take the throne of his father, but he hasn't been anointed by the prophet to be the king. But Ishbosheth is going to surround himself with people who will uphold him to give him the power even though it hasn't been given to him by God. Interesting, that's exactly what Lucifer did, and that's what people throughout time in the Book of Mormon and in other scriptures do when they turn away from God, they're, they're seeking power, they're seeking the glory, the riches, the honor of the world. Isn't that an interesting symbolic overlay for Lucifer, ultimately, what he tried to do was to take all of this glory for himself to ascend above everybody else, whereas you think about what God does and he wants to share his power, share his glory, his dominion with us, and yet sometimes we're not interested because we'd rather just have more than everybody around us. It's a fascinating little uh, overlay as we move forward. Meanwhile, down south in, in the southern part of the, the United Kingdom of Israel, David has the tribe of Judah who is coming to him and he's the anointed king. So up north you have people converging and gathering around Ishbosheth, and down south around King David, and for two years there's this conflict in the first part of 2 Samuel. But eventually David, the anointed of the Lord, rises to power and over, over those two years finally um, overthrows Ishbosheth, 
and David unifies all of the, the tribes under his monarchical reign. And one of the reasons why the later editors who are looking back and trying to explain to us what's going on in Israelite history, why one of the reasons they show that David is such a significant person in Israelite history is that he's the first to really fulfill the grand vision of occupying and owning and having the land. So we know that Joshua's supposed to come in, there's supposed to be this conquest, and if you look carefully at Joshua and Judges, it doesn't fully happen. So it's really under David and then under Solomon, we have a full flourishing of the promises that God made to Abraham of giving the land and then getting the people out of Egypt, you know, years after Abraham, and bringing the Israelites in. So now we're looking at 800 years of anticipation from Abraham to get to a point where the land is now safe and secure. Now, I'm slightly getting ahead of myself because I'm talking about what happens at the time of Solomon, but it's really David who secures the peace of Israel, and that's why he's seen as this beloved king, and his name in Hebrew means beloved, and then his son Solomon reigns in peace after all the enemies have been defeated, and that comes from the Hebrew word shalom, or Solomon means shalom, which means peace. Now, you'll notice that in our scriptural account, David is actually going to get anointed at least three different times. So you'll notice the first anointing was many years ago under the hand of Samuel. Then you come to 2 Samuel chapter 2, and it says in verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So that's where we were talking when there's this conflict between David and Ishbosheth he gets anointed a second time. And then if you go to chapter 5, verse 3, after he's overthrown Ishboth, Ishbosheth and the, the group up north, if you look at chapter 5, verse 3, it says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Did you notice the pattern here? God chose the little shepherd boy, the least, the youngest son in his family, to be the king, and the prophet anointed him. Then later on, when many years later, he gathers the tribe of Judah around him and the people of Judah anoint him. It's their sign of, okay, we've accepted you as our leader. And then in chapter 5, now all of the elders of Israel, the whole kingdom combined, the elders of that group now anoint him. It's this symbol of coming together and of acceptance of this, of this covenant or this protectorship. You're going to now, we, we take you as our leader, you are the anointed. And remember what the meaning of the word anointed ends up being in both Hebrew and Greek. It's Mashiach, Messiah, and in Greek, Christos, Christ. These are little symbols, earthly metaphors for the real anointed one, Christ, and he invites all of us. Now the anointings aren't reserved just for prophets or priests or kings like it was in the Old Testament. Now he invites all to come unto him to become anointed, 
to enter into that, that covenantal connection with him in the temples of our God. Everybody who's willing and worthy to make that, that covenantal connection with God is granted the promise that they too can be anointed. Like the fact that we can connect this to Jesus, he's been anointed by the Father to be our king. So just like David had been anointed by a prophet, God's earthly representative, to be the king, the people eventually had to choose to accept the king. And when they did, there was peace in the land. The civil war went away. So think about our lives. If we accept Jesus as the anointed king, he already has been anointed. But are we willing to accept him as the king? And if everybody is willing to accept him as king, then peace begins to reign. So we see this pattern going on even in the Old Testament that God works with people and invites them to fall in line or come into agreement with what he has already declared to be good and true. So chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 give us some timestamp elements in this story of King David. It says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. I, I don't know, but I think it's significant that Jesus begins his ministry at age 30, David begins his reign at age 30. This, this sign in the New Testament, especially with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, one of, one of Matthew's main stated purposes is to show us how Jesus Christ is the son of David, the legitimate heir to David's throne. And so you're going to see a lot of things match up and line up between David's life and Jesus' life, all of the good elements. Including, it says in verse 5, he reigned thirty and three years over all Israel and Judah. And according to some chronologies, Jesus was 33 years on the earth. So there's just fun little details here in the Absolutely. scriptures. So now he's, he's going to go into what we call Jerusalem today. So David goes and he is he's the one who's going to attack the Jebusites in this walled city, and it's a fortified city, and the Jebusites think there's no way anybody can get us. But David and his men find a way through the, the culverts and the, the, the drainage system to get in and overthrow them, and at the time of Jesus, Jerusalem looks roughly like that, and here's the Temple Mount, and you have the Kidron Valley here, you have the Hinnom Valley here, Mount of Olives here, Garden of Gethsemane right about here, that's Jerusalem, and when we think Jerusalem today, it's, it's massive, it's spread over all this, this area. But at the time of David, Jerusalem is that. It's this little finger between the Tyropian Valley and the and the Kidron Valley, and it's later on that they're going to expand up on top of Mount Moriah, and here's where Solomon, his son, is going to build the temple. But that is Jerusalem, and so they call it, when he overthrows the Jebusites, they call it the city of David. So moving forward, Jerusalem is going to become this capital city for the kingdom of Israel. A really important place because this is on a ridge, very difficult to take. You have these massive walls, and there's an ever-flowing spring of water called the Gihon Spring. And anywhere you go in the world, you need water to survive. And 
where this city was first established, whoever established it first, was smart because they established it right next to this ever-flowing stream of water. An enormous amount of water comes out of that, and this plays an important role, this source of water, throughout the Israelite history. In some ways, it's still symbolically important today in Jerusalem. Beautiful. So, at the time of Isaiah, when Hezekiah is the king, he's actually going to build Hezekiah's tunnel which is going to connect it down to the Pool of Siloam, but we'll talk about that later, many, many weeks down the road. So, he's now setting up his kingdom, and you'll, you'll notice a pattern here in this early part of King David's reign. Look at verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up unto the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand. Look at verse 23. After he goes and he, he wins that battle, then chapter uh, 5, verse 23, when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them and come up upon them over against the mulberry trees. So the next time there's another army threatening and he, he's not trusting in the arm of flesh. He's not saying, well, I, I took out Goliath, so I've, I've got this. He keeps going to the Lord. He's inquiring of the Lord, and he's not just asking, he's listening. He's hearing the Lord, and he's heeding what the Lord tells him to do, and shocker, he's prospering. God is saying, if you'll be my people, I will be your God. I'll, I'll protect you, and that's exactly what we get in this early phase of David's reign as king, he, he recognizes who the real king is, and he's turning to him repeatedly. We see this going on in the Book of Mormon. Alma the Younger, who often inquires of the Lord when there's warfare going on. So we see this pattern that a ruler's job is not simply to sit on a throne and collect the resources like we saw King Noah do, but to lead out by seeking the will of God and enacting the will of God and modeling for everybody, this is what it means to follow God's revelations. Really fascinating. We have modern-day prophets who inquire of the Lord. They are there to protect us and they lead out, and if we follow them, we are likely to be happy and prosper, just like those who followed Alma the Younger or David. So, we see this pattern. Leaders who inquire of the Lord and follow him prosper, and people who follow inspired leaders prosper. Okay, so in chapter 6, David is now going to move his, his capital city into this, what he's calling the city of David, and to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, this part of Jerusalem is called the city of David. Um, all these years later, the, the name still sticks. And so, as he's moving all of his, his furniture and his possessions and everything into this new capital city, the most important thing to move in is the Ark of the Covenant. So they build a new cart, they put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, and they start uh, bringing it with, with timbrels, cymbals, cornets, psalteries, this, this huge parade, this celebration. And look at verse 6. When they came to uh, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. 
So Uzzah's this guy who's not apparently a Levite, and he puts his hand, and you've heard the phrase, don't steady the ark, well, that's what Uzzah's doing, and the outcome is not good for him. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And as Taylor mentioned at the beginning of this, this episode, this is a foreign land to us and, and a foreign time, and it feels really harsh. It would be nice to get some actual video footage from that day to know exactly what happened, but since we don't have that, let's not spend as much time focusing on the difficulty of the actual event and instead use it for us and apply it or liken it to our day in what are ways that we, as well-intentioned as can be, sometimes try to tell the Lord what to do or tell leaders how to, to govern the church. And so there's a nice pattern here that even though you may think there's a better way to do something, then in that case you can pray to the Lord and ask for that revelation to be given rather than trying to steady the ark ourself. Like taking power and authority to yourself and say, I'm going to make this happen and I'm going to push the leader out of the way or I'm going to take over that calling and just do it better than anybody. And I, it's just interesting that God works with imperfect people. Um, I've been put in callings that other people probably would have been way more prepared to do, and like we can just trust God that he has a plan and we all choose to do our best within our sphere of influence, things will work out. We don't have to leave our sphere of influence and push somebody out of their sphere of influence and say, I'm taking over what you're doing because you're not doing it right. Um, there, there's just a, there's a larger plan at place here. Which, by the way, is an interesting idea from the beginning part of this story of the cart got a little bumpy, the, the road was not smooth, something happened to jar the, the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, and sometimes you and I expect in the church and kingdom of God for things to just flow very smoothly and steadily with no bumps or, or bruises along the way, when in reality, I, I don't know of any history of any segment of the history of the world outside of a few rare exceptions with Enoch and maybe in 4th Nephi and a few other times where that is the path. It's bumpy. It's, it's got twists and turns, and it's okay if, if things don't flow perfectly as long as we follow the Lord and trust his prophets as we move forward. So, to set the context further of why David's bringing the ark into the city, this is actually very common as we in the ancient Near East at this time. When a king has come to power, often they would either build a temple or refurbish a temple. The sign here is that God is with the people and it's now symbolically the Sabbath. There's rest that creation has overcome all this chaos. If you go back to the creation story, there's all this chaos, this mingling and bumbling and jumbling of all this disorder, and God's role is to create boundaries and put order where there's chaos. In some ways, that's what David has done through the power of God. He has put order into the kingdom. So creation has been complete, and it's now time to rest. It's time to have a Sabbath. And so it's like we're inviting God to his holy hill, 
where he can have his Sabbath rest at the temple. And this leads into 2 Samuel chapter 7, which may be one of the most important chapters to understand in the Old Testament because it provides a covenantal foundation that takes us right to Jesus Christ. And it's all about David now having rest from God, and he starts to build himself a palace. He's like, huh, God's been living in a tent for hundreds of years. I live in a house. I should build a house or a temple to God. And God says, I have something better, David. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty that will endure forever. And Jesus is the apex of that house, of that dynasty. So all these stories are kind of culminating right here of this temple text, this covenantal, this eternal Davidic covenant that God gives to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's such a beautiful tie-in to the New Testament to realize that it's the Lord Jehovah who's telling King David, I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build the temple or a house for me. Your son Solomon is going to do that. The reason that's given here in chapter 7 is because David has been a man of war, a man of blood. He has he has – it's been a pretty violent life for David, and he says, well, you're not going to be the one to build that temple for me. It's going to be your son, but I will build you that house, and the, the to me, the beautiful symbolism here is that it's the Lord speaking to him, giving him the prophecy of your kingdom will never fail, and it's going to be your son, not your literal son Solomon, but your son, Jesus Christ, who is going to sit on the throne of David and restore the kingdom to the house of Israel, to the, to the house of David, this, this dynasty that will reign forever and ever and ever. It's wonderful that David's hearing this from the Lord, who is the one who is actually going to be the fulfillment of all of those very, very prophecies. Adding to this, we should indicate that this promise that we see here, this enduring eternal promise to David that he will always have a descendant on the throne, when we earlier mapped out this kind of long history, around 600 BC when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and King Zedekiah is killed, the Bible writers are scratching their head. They're like, we know this promise to David that it was supposed to be an eternal kingdom. How is it? that we've lost the temple, which is the symbol of God's presence with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, God isn't with us because his temple's been destroyed, and the city's been destroyed, and we're off in a foreign country under foreign gods. How do we account for this? So it turns out that the, the Bible editors are trying to make an accounting for how could it be that God would give an eternal promise and yet it didn't get fulfilled? And it make, they make it very clear throughout the narrative that the people chose apostasy again and again because most of the kings had chosen apostasy and led the people away from God. And so the message is, if you choose the right king, and if that king keeps you on the covenant path, you are more likely, well, you are promised to endure. And ultimately, it's Jesus is the king. He shows up. He delivers the Sermon on the Mount. He says, here is the update to the covenantal instructions. If you align with me, I'm the king of heaven, you will prosper in the land. And it's also interesting, the Book of Mormon deals with the same thing, where you have a group of people leaving the area of Jerusalem at this time, they understand 
that people are falling because they haven't kept the covenants. Nephi teaches his people, we have to be loyal to God. A thousand years later, Mormon, just like the Bible writers, is like scratching his head. How do I account for the fact that yet again, these people have fallen into disarray? It's because they have failed to live up to their end of the bargain. So God's covenantal promises are eternal. They never go away. But we can choose to turn away from them and not get access to it. They're still there if we turn back. And that's the thrust of these stories. Sure, we can get lost in the weeds of all the political conflict and the intrigue and the assassinations. If we just step back, it's about God promising his enduring love to people, and it's always available if we choose to stay connected to him. So chapter 7, verse 4 through 17, is this instruction given to Nathan, the prophet, to then be delivered to David, the king, because David's thinking, hey, I'm going to go up onto Mount Moriah here, the high point, and I'm going to build a house to the Lord. Well, Nathan is given this, this speech, so to speak, to give to King David about why he shouldn't be the one to build that house, but God's going to build a house for David, and it'll be David's son Solomon who ends up building the temple here on the top of Mount Moriah. Just for orientation, Mount Zion right here is actually higher than Mount Moriah, so that's where Herod's palace is going to be built at the time of Jesus, um, just to kind of connect us Old Testament with New Testament. And also to connect to the New Testament, look at verse 14. This is an important one. <clears throat> God is saying to King David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. In the ancient world, the son of God literally meant the king. So when you look at the New Testament and people are calling Jesus the son of God, now definitely he is spiritually and physically the son of God. We are all children of God. That is all true, but because we sometimes think of it in such a literal fashion, we also miss that the title, son of God, coming right out of here, 2 Samuel 7.14, this is a title of kingship. And so when the Jews were talking about Jesus as the Son of God, it was very clear that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the King, very, very clear. And it's interesting that this is part of the reason why the Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus, is that he had this title of kingship, and they really didn't want him to be the king. They wanted to have power for themselves or to let the Romans dominate them, this foreign power. So, again, Son of God, it means to be the king. So now look at verse 20. What can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servants know them. So David at this point, he's acknowledging the fact that I didn't make myself great. I didn't overcome Goliath, I haven't overcome the Philistines or the Ammonites or all of these different uh, battles that I've had to fight. I, I didn't do that. He acknowledges that. And look at verse 22, wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. You can picture David singing, how great thou art. All of those feelings attached to that hymn are contained in this section. From, from verse 20 down through the end of this chapter, David is reminiscing, he's, he's reflecting on God's greatness, on his goodness, 
on his power and his mercy and his knowledge. There is none like thee, neither is there any God besides, beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And then he talks about the, the people, um, that God redeemed them and he made them uh, a name. Verse 24, he confirmed their name. Verse 26, he magnified them. The, all these words that the God of the universe has capacity to do, but the, the idol gods of the world can't do. You can only trust in the arm of flesh so long before it lets you down. But as Taylor said, that, that power coming from heaven that we can tap into, even if we've strayed, even if we've broken that covenant, we can return to the covenant and reconnect with God. It is firm, steadfast, and immovable, unshakable power that we have access to. Let's tie this back into the Abrahamic promises, or more specifically, the unbreakable and enduring promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. For example, he says to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. David is the embodiment. He's one manifestation of the fulfillment of this promise. All these passages that Tyler was reviewing with us are about how David recognizes that God is great and that David became great because he was aligned with the great one that his name became great because he was aligned with the great name. So it's fascinating how the scriptures have all these powerful connections that connect the covenants and these major heroes who've chosen to align with God, that God can show he can do his work. And when we walk away from God, well, our name won't be great and great things will not happen. Now, this brings us to an interesting point that, that I think is relevant to us today. Sometimes, you and I have experiences in life where we feel this covenant connection with God. We're, we're on a mountain peak of revelation. We're glorifying the Lord. We're, we're singing his praises. We're seeing his hand very clearly in our life, and it's, and it's wonderful, and we think, ah, we've arrived. But as you've noticed, we don't live, we don't dwell on mountain peaks of revelation, basking in the light of heaven constantly. There are moments, but eventually those moments end and you come down off of the mountain into what you might call real life. And that's exactly what happens to David in chapter 8. He comes down from this, this lofty spiritual experience of having been given this, this uh, dream from Nathan, from the Lord, and then him reflecting on it, and now begins the difficulty of carrying out all those promises and then continuing to deliver the people from the hands of their enemies. So he fights the Philistines in verse 1, he fights the Moabites in verse 2. Ver verse 4, David took him a thousand chariots from the them, a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 footmen, and then the Syrians of Damascus came, and verse 9, the king of Hamath gets involved. You're noticing that the opposition is coming from all around, circled all around the kingdom of Israel. They have enemies who are trying to thwart them and trying to take away their riches and their kingdom. And well, their peace. And their peace. Notice everything that David got, verse 11, 
which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he subdued. So everything David conquers or overcomes or takes in, he doesn't selfishly take it to himself. He dedicates everything to the Lord. I love that because you probably aren't out on physical conquests destroying people and taking the spoils of those battles that are won, but you are many of you going to work, you're, you're getting money, you're getting riches of, of all varieties, and the pattern here is instead of taking them to ourselves and turning inward, I love this pattern of dedicating them and devoting them to the Lord because those riches can very quickly become idols to us today. They can turn our heart horizontally to things of the world rather than vertically to the things of God, and so this is a beautiful pattern. Look at verse 14 now. David put garrisons in Edom, throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. That's the part I wanted to focus on. The Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. It didn't matter whether he was going to the Philistines, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the Lord is delivering him wherever he went. Verse 15, and David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Which now brings us to this fascinating story in the middle of all of this war from chapter 8 and the wars that are going to continue to come forth after chapter 9. I think it's beautiful to see this little, almost this, this metaphor or this allegory of the atonement of Jesus Christ dropped into the middle of this, this messy, muddy story. Chapter 9, what happens is, is David, in a, in a season of, of peace, a, a period of some reprieve, he stops and you can picture him scratching his head saying, wait a minute, what about Saul and Jonathan? Jonathan, my good friend, my dear friend who was killed, is there no descendant of Saul or of Jonathan left? And so he starts asking around, and they find one. Verse 6, his name is Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. So when this when this man, Mephibosheth, was younger, uh, a nursemaid, a, a, a maid, was carrying him fleeing for safety and she fell, and Mephibosheth got injured in that, in that retreat, and he's now lame. He, he's paralyzed in his, in his legs, he can't walk. And so David finds out about this and he calls for Mephibosheth to be brought to him. So let's watch this story play out. Oh, and by the way, rather than waiting for the end to, to do the, the grand reveal, let's do it at the beginning. What if you read this story with you and me being in the role, symbolically, of Mephibosheth? This is us. This is our story at this point, not just history and Mephibosheth is brought to King David, who is a nice symbolic allegorical uh, overlay 
for the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the ultimate King of Israel. So we who are lame, we can't walk, so to speak, we're limited, we're brought before the Lord. Notice his response in verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. So can you picture this moment if you're brought into the presence of the king, you fall to the ground on your face, you feel unworthy, you feel out of place, you feel, quite frankly, lame. Verse 7, David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I? Here's Mephibosheth saying, you're going to feed me at your table? You're going to give me land? I, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I, I'm a nobody. I'm a dead dog to you, and why are you bringing me in and giving me all of this, this outpouring of mercy and loving kindness? Um, you'll notice that, so, uh, that uh, David goes one step further and he calls for servants to go out and actually farm the land and make it fruitful and productive, and all of the harvest is now going to be given to Mephibosheth. Isn't that interesting? Mephibosheth is doing nothing to earn this. He's simply the son of Jonathan, who's the son of Saul, and because of his place in that family, he is now given these incredible blessings. I think it's a beautiful invitation that the Lord gives us to become a part of his family, to become a, a son or daughter of Christ. If you use the, the wording from Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, or uh, Ether chapter 3, verse 14, where we become the children of Christ, where simply because of our relation to him, we now have access to all of these tender mercies that are being uh, given to us by the Lord, and this is a, this is a beautiful atonement overlay, this, this allegory for me. Notice verse 13, the ending of chapter 9. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet." So you see these elements of the Savior's enabling grace through this story that took place in history. Uh, and I love the fact that Jesus invites you and me to come and eat at his table every week to participate with him in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper we don't earn it. We don't deserve that, that level of grace, that level of mercy. This isn't something you, you, you check enough boxes and then you, you get this reward. This is an outpouring of divine grace, and we are invited then to eat at his table, and the irony is, is 
we're still lame. We have to continually rely on him moving forward. Eating at his table doesn't all of a sudden take away all of our imperfections and our mortal weaknesses. We still have to continually strive to trust in him and, and follow him. You know, David's story arc is a, is a fascinating one. Here you get this, this young shepherd boy born as the last son of Jesse. He's small, insignificant, he's out keeping the sheep, and then he, he gets anointed to be the king, then he goes and slays Goliath, and then he overcomes multiple attempts on his life by Saul, eventually Saul dies and David is anointed king by Judah, and then eventually by all of Israel, and then he unites Israel and he keeps overcoming all of these, these other influences that are trying to overthrow him, and you're thinking, wow, this is a great story, um, because you'll notice at each of these phases his focus has been on the real king, on the God of Israel, on heaven, and because he's focused upward, isn't that an interesting pattern? Have you noticed that human beings generally walk the direction they, they're facing? And if you're looking up, you're probably going to ascend. If you allow too much of your time to be looking down or laterally, horizontally, you're probably going to stay on the same level or go down. So here's a fascinating story that we now get in chapter 11 where his direction of focus changes. It's no longer looking up. It says in verse 1, and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. So where's David? So the Bible editors are making it totally clear. The king is supposed to be leading with the direction of God. Remember in the past, David had been inquiring of the Lord, should I go up to battle here or not? At this point, it's almost like I'm this wealthy, rich king. I'll just delegate for everybody else. And he's not doing what is his role. So he stays behind in Jerusalem and distracts himself and creates and causes a grievous sin. This is, this is a really, really critical point here, to be in the right place at the right time will be a shield of faith against temptation for us. Often it's not, it's not that we're so weak, it's that we allow ourselves to be put in positions or places where we've opened ourselves up for temptation that if we were in the right place at the right time, that wouldn't have even been a temptation for us, which I think is one of the main points of, of these biblical editors here in chapter 11 to say kings should be going to battle, and at the bottom of verse 1 it says, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. So he stayed behind. He didn't go where he was supposed to go. And you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, there's no sign of him turning to the Lord. It, it doesn't mean that he didn't, it's just everywhere else it's talking about him turning heavenward, and here he didn't. So notice the verbs. He tarried. Now, 
let's keep the story going in verse 2, it came to pass that in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed, he walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. You'll notice which direction David's eyes are going at this point. He's up on his roof and he's now looking down. Now, it's a metaphor for this idea of here's this amazing person and all of a sudden he's no longer looking heavenward, he's looking down. Yeah, he's in his palace. You've got to realize that the city of David is built on this hill, so the king is at, his palace is nearly at the top of the hill, so it's easy for him to look down mountain or downhill. What if he'd actually turned the other way and looked a bit uphill? What would he, he had seen? It would have been the tent of the Lord, the tabernacle, uh, the, the temple had not yet been built. But symbolically, he should have been looking uphill to God. And when I read this story, I think about a lesson I heard years ago at BYU Education Week, and I wish I could remember the name of the speaker, but very fascinating insights. He indicated that if you take the names of the people involved here, you have uh, David, which we know means beloved, you have this woman named Bathsheba, and that actually means daughter and covenant, so daughter of the covenant. And her husband's name is Uriah. Turns out that means light of Jehovah. And so what does David do? So he has extinguished the light of Jehovah, which now, because of that, has enticed him to transgress or break boundaries with a daughter of the covenant. So just some interesting symbols we have going on with the names. Isn't it fascinating that it's not as if David's story arc looks like this and then he commits adultery with Bathsheba and ends up like that. Life is a little more nuanced, it's a little more complex, not quite so simple as this, where that experience, I, I don't know how to draw this to scale and I don't know exactly what it would be like, but the experience with Bathsheba would definitely take him significantly down, at which point David would have the option of recognizing what had happened and fully repenting at that point, turning to the Lord, uh, pleading for forgiveness, turning to Uriah, pleading for forgiveness from everybody involved, and my hunch is, is that if he had turned heavenward at that point, he would have then continued to progress towards heaven. But instead, he made a mistake, and instead of going north, uh, heading heavenward, he then tries to cover it himself. He looks, he looks for solutions to cover up the fact that Bathsheba is now pregnant and Uriah was not home. He's off at the war, so he tries to cover it up using worldly means, calls Uriah back from the battle. But this light of Jehovah character refuses to go and stay at his house while all of his, his fellow soldiers are sleeping out on the battlefield, and so David tries multiple ways to get him to go home and he won't go home, so then David does the, the unthinkable of sending him back out to the battlefront with a sealed decree that is Uriah's own death sentence. And Uriah faithfully and obediently and diligently delivers that to the captain 
who then reads it and puts him on the front line where he's going to be killed, thus causing another downturn. Brothers and sisters, the point I'm, we're trying to make here is it doesn't matter where you are in your own story arc of life, at every single junction you have a decision to make. You can either turn heavenward or you can turn to the world's solutions or down to the, to the devil's temptations, and you will go the direction you face. Regardless of whether you're, you're progressing or whether you've struggled, the invitation here for, for me throughout this storyline is look to God and live. Don't, don't try to cover it up. Now, isn't it ironic that David gets Uriah killed, he then brings Bathsheba into his household, he marries her, and he's probably thinking, whew, crisis averted, we're good, whew, covered that up, no one's going to know. Well, then chapter 12 comes along. Nathan the prophet comes in to speak to David, and this has to be <laughs> this has to be one of the saddest stories of the entire Bible. This uh, this prophet having to come in and confront King David with what the Lord has given him. So you'll notice in verse one, the Lord sent Nathan unto David. So he comes in, and instead of just coming in saying, "David, I know what you did, and this is what's going to happen," no. Nathan's a lot more elegant than that. He comes and he says, so David, I have a problem. I have a situation and I need, your, I need your judgment. I need your help on this. There were two men. One, very rich, has a huge flock of sheep, and his neighbor only has a single ewe lamb, and he loves that ewe lamb, and he takes care of that ewe, and it's just a beautiful relationship. Well, this rich guy has somebody come, some visitors come, and he wants to throw a, a party for them, so he went and he got the single ewe lamb of his neighbor and he killed it, and he threw the party for these guests. What should I do in that situation? You'll notice verse 5, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die." And now some of the saddest words in the entire Bible, verse 7, and Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Can you picture that moment? By the way, can you, can you picture David? He's, he's maybe pacing back and forth in anger. How? how dare that guy do that? How terrible can you be? He shall surely die. Can you picture him? Maybe blood pressure raised, he's, he's breathing heavily, and Nathan's standing there saying, David, thou art the man. And can you picture that moment of realization of, oh, all of my efforts to cover my sin, they, they didn't cover it. God knows, Nathan knows, Oh no, and his kingdom, his world, comes crushing down on him in one moment, that realization. Um, and for the rest of David's life, it seems, he spends the rest of his life lamenting and pleading with God for help and for mercy and forgiveness. If we look ahead to the rest of 2 Samuel, this seems to be 
the foundation point of chaos that breaks out in David's life and in his family. There's in court intrigue, it's family intrigue. He's got sons who are trying to overthrow him and take the king, the, the kingdom for themselves. It almost sounds like the book of Ether. And it just is just very sad. And here we have this man who had so much goodness and trust in God, the praises that we have recorded from him um, in Psalms, as we suppose, just so much incredible goodness, and yet he had to suffer the consequences, a number of really bad choices. So again, the scriptures are preserved for us in part that we can learn through other people's experiences to be more wise than they. So that um, child of Bathsheba is born and does not survive, does not live. He, he passes away. Um, and then Bathsheba bears another son named Solomon, who will be the next king, and it's promised to Solomon that he will take the throne of David his father. Well, now you fast forward to the end of 2 Samuel, and there are a whole bunch – Taylor mentioned this – David's family gets really messy and there's a lot of intrigue, Amnon and Absalom, and there are all of these stories. The rest of 2 Samuel is – it's pretty heavy. It's pretty thick reading. Then you get into 1 Kings chapter 1, and we find David on his deathbed and you have one of his sons named Adonijah. Now, that's an interesting name, Adonai-jah. Adonai is the Lord, and Jah is the root for Jehovah. So that's this kid's name, and he is conspiring to take his father's throne, because King David's on his deathbed. Everybody knows he's breathing his last any moment now, and they don't know when he's going to pass, but it's close. So Adonijah this this character who, with a name like that, he should have been one of the best people ever, but he's not. He's conspiring to, to put himself on the throne, this false king, a, a false Christ, so to speak, somebody who wants to appear as if he's the king, but he isn't the rightful heir to the throne according to what the promise has been given. And a lot of people follow him. A lot of wealthy, respected, good, upstanding citizens say, hey, he seems like a good guy. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to put my lot in with him instead of paying attention to what the prophet said. Which, which to me is a beautiful overlay. It's, a, it's an echo of a premortal story of he to whom the throne did not rightfully belong sets himself up as that light, Lucifer, that son of the morning, and he gets a lot of very, very powerful, influential people to follow him, but in the end, chapter 1 tells us that uh, Bathsheba gets wind of what's going on, and Nathan and Zadok the priest, and they come to David who – he's ready to die, and they, they arouse him, and Bathsheba says, didn't you promise that our son Solomon would, would be the next king? and David arouses enough of energy that he, he comes awake and says yes, and she then tells him what Adonijah is trying to do, and then David says some very, very interesting things that have beautiful connection to the New Testament. He says to Nathan and Zadok, go and take my son Solomon. Remember Jerusalem at the time of Jesus? Here's the Temple Mount. 
Here's the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley. He says, take my son Solomon to the Gihon Spring, which is in the Kidron Valley, put him on my mule, and there anoint him to be the king, and then have him basically ride into Jerusalem. It's this, it's this sign, yes, here's our new king. So, fascinating. You get a mule in the Kidron Valley, coming past the key, the, the, or starting at the Gihon Spring here, he gets anointed, he's the son of David, and he's now going to ride on that mule and come into Jerusalem as the new king. Well, and his name means Solomon, he's the king of peace. The prince of peace. Right now he's the son of the king, so he's the prince of peace, he's going to be anointed as the new king coming into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's, it's this beautiful connecting story in 1 Kings chapter 1 to the event that happens on Palm Sunday when Jesus opens up the week of his atoning sacrifice. He gets on a donkey or a mule over in Bethany, rides over the Kidron – or rides over the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, likely past the Gihon Spring, riding riding on a mule or a donkey, he is the anointed one, the king, and he's coming into Jerusalem, and what do the people shout on that beautiful day, waving palm branches in the air and throwing their garments down on the ground in front of him? What are they shouting? Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna, Hoshana, means to say it's a petition for salvation, right? Yeah, save us, please. Please save now. In fact, uh, the word Jesus and Shana, Hoshana, come from the same root word. So the name Jesus is embedded in the word Hoshana. It's like Jesus, please, Jesus now, which means salvation, please. Yeah, so his name, uh, the, the people would be referring to him not as Jesus in his day, it's Yeshua, and that Shua is the same root here as the, the, the Hoshana. They're, they're pleading with him for salvation as the son of David. They're seeing him as the, as the repeat of what happened in 1 Kings chapter 1. So Solomon's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as their new king to take the throne of David, well, the Jewish people in the first century are seeing Jesus Christ, or Yeshua, now as the fulfillment of that Davidic promise. Here, here's, here's our Messiah, our anointed one, on a mule in the Kidron Valley. He's going to save us. And the Jewish leaders knew that uh, they saw the symbolism and they're like, we don't want to share power, so we're going to execute this, what they felt was an upstart. And that was one of the reasons that Jesus was crucified. They saw very clearly the symbol, and they did not want a king in Israel. They did not want Jesus as the Messiah. A threat to their own power structure. So then Solomon takes over, David implores him to keep the commandments of the Lord in chapter 2, 
When I hear that, it reminds me of Lehi's words to his children in 2 Nephi chapters 1 through 4. It's like the final parting words, and it's all focused on the covenantal connection to God. God revealed himself to you at Mount Sinai. Live those commandments. Be covenantally faithful to God. If you look carefully in the scriptures, the Bible editors identify when kings walked with God or didn't. When they walked with God, they actually lived the covenantal instructions and taught them to their people. When they didn't walk with God, they also did not model or teach people to be covenantally faithful. And that's when the Israelites are going to apostasy. So here's David, who has been seeking to be faithful, is now teaching his son yet again. Final words, be faithful to God and you will prosper. We get that throughout the Book of Mormon. If you keep the commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. It's wonderful. Now go to chapter 3, verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. In verse 5 it says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. So then you get this long dream that goes all the way down to verse 14. He awakes from the dream in verse 15. So what happened in the dream? You get this dialogue between the Lord and Solomon where, where God basically says, ask whatever you want, Solomon. You get whatever wish you want. And at the end of, of Solomon kind of describing some of the things that the Lord has done for David, verse 9, he makes the request, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people. And so what does the Lord do? He says, yeah, granted, I'll give that to you, but when we're talking about the Lord God of the universe, he doesn't just do things just enough. He gives Solomon Solomon's request, but he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you some things that you didn't ask for, which I think happens with you and with me all the time in our prayers, where there are occasions in our lives where we're asking for certain things, um, our daily bread for safety and protection, um, for success in different things, and there are occasions where the Lord comes and says, verse 13, I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee of all thy days. So that's what he gave to Solomon, and it's going to look different for each one of us, but I love the fact that we don't have to picture a God in heaven who has a very limited amount of resources and can only give us a little teeny amount. He wants to give us everything. And I love the statement that uh, Elder Neely Maxwell made years ago when he said something along the lines of, if we give God everything that we have, then in return he'll give us everything that he has. And then he said, what an exchange rate. I love that, that we don't have to play um, a game with the Lord. We don't, we don't have to try to deserve these things. If we'll just trust him, if we'll just turn to him and keep, keep striving to connect with him in these covenantal ways, then we don't have to, to wonder if he's going to bless us. He will bless us, and we don't know what those blessings will look like and what form they'll take, but he holds worlds without number in his hand. He is very capable, more than capable, of giving us what we need and, in some cases, 
what we didn't know we needed, but it turns out are a huge blessing down the road to us. So this wisdom then plays out in the Solomon story where he becomes the source of justice and righteousness, where he helps to determine between good and evil in a variety of cases, and he understands the world, and people come to him, and they bring gifts, and he's enriched, and the kingdom's enriched because he, he's so wise. And I, I, it makes me think about two things. First, the book of Proverbs, which is a collection of wise sayings, and one of the thesis statements that we have in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, is the fear or the respect of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, meaning fools don't want the covenantal instructions from the Lord. I want you to think about Nephi. What did Nephi want? Did he want wealth, power, and prestige? He was like Solomon. He wanted wisdom, and so he sought after the records. He was willing to work hard to get the covenantal instructions, the scriptures, so he could know how to be aligned with the Lord to show that he loved the Lord. The word love is a covenantal word that means loyalty and trust in a covenantal relationship. And what are the outcomes of living in wisdom? It's peace and prosperity in the land. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And there's two major meanings of the word prosper in the scriptures. One is to have God's spirit with you, that you are in relationship with God. The other is that God will materially take care of you. And Solomon is like this paragon, this like massive example of this is somebody the most wise was also the most wealthy. And I want to be careful here because it's not just simply if you have wisdom and you're always living God's commands that you will be the wealthiest person in the world. So the, the Bible metaphor might be over-exaggerating for effect, but it's, this is the message here. Wisdom is being in league with God and keeping the commandments. Which, if you stop and think about that for a minute, if we, if we analyze how do I spend my time and, and where am I putting my focus? Am I looking for God's wisdom? Do I spend time every day looking to God for his wisdom, or do I spend significant amounts of time looking to the world and to the wisdom of the world trying to learn what, what the world would tell me to do in how to live my life? Sometimes, I don't know about you guys, I sometimes feel a little overwhelmed with the admonition to search the scriptures, because there's a lot there. But when I reflect and realize the scriptures and the words of modern-day prophets are the covenantal instructions, it changes my perspective. It's like, oh, God actually simply wants me to remember or review some covenantal instructions so I can be in relationship with him. So, if you feel overwhelmed around scripture or scripture study, maybe just say to yourself, can I spend just a few minutes today reminding myself of things that God would like me to do to show that I love him? Are there things that I've heard from the modern-day prophets, some set of covenantal instructions that I can enact today to show that I'm loyal to God, that I trust him? So, perhaps we don't have to worry like, I haven't mastered the scriptures, I can't tell you the name of every writer and how they fall out in scriptures. I don't think that we're going to be asked those questions at the pearly gates, but we will be brought into God's presence as we seek to be covenantally loyal to him and just a few instructions on a daily basis. What's one covenantal instruction that I can follow today a little bit better than I did yesterday to show just a bit more love and loyalty to God? 
I think that might lower the temperature a bit instead of all of us feeling like we've got to be like lifelong scriptorians. I think it's about being lifelong, covenantly loyal to God with guidance from the instructions that have been preserved for us. Yeah, you can probably recognize the fact that it would be possible for somebody to spend hours and hours and hours a day studying their scriptures, memorizing facts, figures, dates, places, details, but not coming any closer to God in the process, or becoming an expert in all things general conference, being able to tell you exactly who said what in which conference session, but it becomes only a mental exercise. When your scripture study and your tuning your ear to the prophets actually helps you strive to connect with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when it, it has its real power. It's not in, it's not in the, the expertise. And there are some of you who in different phases of life, it's, a, it's an amazing victory if you can even find time to, to read a verse and, and have a meaningful experience with one verse a day, because maybe you've got children, or maybe you've got a, a mental or a physical disability, or maybe you have other circumstances that make that very difficult. The point is your focus is heavenward, and any time and effort you spend in the scriptures isn't for the scripture's sake, it's for a relationship with, with God that you're trying to establish and build. And uh, you see that through this, through these um, wisdom literature sayings that are going to come from Solomon. We'll cover those later when we when we cover the Proverbs in greater detail. So in chapter five, we begin to assemble things to to build the temple. And chapter six, we're now building it out of stone. Look at look at verse thirteen. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel." Which, by the way, many people at the, at the Babylonian exile are scratching their head like we talked about earlier, saying, wait, it, he will be among his children, the children of Israel, and will not forsake his people Israel. What happened? And it doesn't take a genius reading the accounts moving forward to know or to recognize that God didn't forsake his children, oh, but his children forsook him over and over and over again. It, we're about to get to this part where the temple's built. It's important to point out that for the people, the temple was the physical manifestation of God's presence with them. And what happened is, for generations afterwards, Jews and Israelites would look to the temple to say, God is with us. Therefore, God of the universe, if he's here, no one can conquer us. No one can hurt us. And I'm going to roll this forward to the time of Laman and Lemuel, Nephi and Lehi, Lehi says the city's going to be destroyed. Jeremiah is saying that. The people at the time are like, wait a second, the God of the universe lives here. How in the world could this city fall? It's impossible. And people felt like Lehi and Jeremiah were traitors and probably irreligious, and we have Laman and Lemuel feeling the same way, like they trusted because there was a building, they believed that was enough to keep them from experiencing the consequences of disbelieving God. So we have the temple being built. Temples are so important. but We can't just let the physical manifestation or representation of God's presence lead us into carnal security that that means we don't have to regularly choose to be in a relationship with God. 
And unfortunately, that's the story we'll have over 400 years with Israelites saying, oh, we got the temple. All good. Temple's there. And uh, we'll just go on with our lives and not really pay attention to God. And what happened to Laman and Lemuel? Things did not work out. So you watch Solomon now. He builds the temple. You get all of these kings and queens of the world coming to, to Jerusalem, to the kingdom of Israel, and seeing his wisdom and experiencing his majesty and just the amazing blessings that God has poured out on Solomon and consequently the whole the whole kingdom. It was like a mini empire at the time. If you look at a map like where Egypt is and Mesopotamia, those areas had kind of been in economic decline and even imperial uh, political decline. And at this time, Solomon in the Middle East is probably one of the, if not the most powerful king. So it's very, very interesting, this time of peace. And then eventually we're going to see they lose it because they turn away from God again. Well, here you go. So you, you go from chapter 10, after the Queen of Sheba comes, verse 23 says, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they're bringing with them riches. And you're thinking, okay, this is great. So once again we get this story arc where he, he's just climbing, 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 and he's looking to God, and he's blessing, or he's being blessed abundantly. And then we get to chapter 11. Look at the very first word of chapter 11, verse 1, the word is but. In spite of all of this prospering, in spite of all of this amazing loving kindness from heaven, King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Let's unpack this a bit. So we all know what the word love is, we want loving relationships, but there's a covenantal meaning here too that Solomon was making political alliances. And the word strange women is really means foreigners. So remember, God has everything. He says, Solomon, if you covenant to be with me, I will give you all things. Well, he gets all those things and then Solomon says, huh, I can make deals with all these other kings and I can marry their daughters and we can have political alliances, and I can get their wealth and their trade, I can have military protection. So if I marry all these princesses from all these foreign lands, I will have all this earthly protection. And so I'm going to love them. I'm going to get into covenantal relationship with all these foreigners. Now, look, I don't think God is against people making society prosperous and peaceful and protected, but it's ultimately, it seems like Solomon decided, huh, God was okay for a while, but I'm going to put my trust in foreign kings, and I'm going to prove that trust by covenanting with them by marrying their daughters, which was a very common practice anciently. So just be careful here. It's not that the women per se were the problem. The way the text lays it out, we sometimes think, oh, these women led Solomon astray. It was that Solomon chose a political practice, and he chose to put his trust in the arm of flesh, expressed in marrying these foreign princesses 
as a form of a political alliance. It's a little sad that he chose to do this. Yeah, and each one of those princesses has her own pantheon of gods and goddesses or or their their preferred mode of worship, um, idol worship, and they now introduce those into Solomon's life, thus turning his attention off of heaven and towards these other these other gods. And from a political standpoint, if he's been marrying these foreign women who have foreign gods, well, they believe their gods are going to protect them, and so to keep the alliance as strong, Solomon is going to feel duty-bound to live according to the instructions of those false or idol gods. And that's where God's saying, listen, you can hang out with other people, just your whole alliance is supposed to be with me. You are not supposed to having any alliances with other people where you get your instructions from them. And so, yeah, they brought these these foreign practices in, and Solomon supported them as a way to keep political peace, and it created chaos in his own heart. And then the sad ending to that story is in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. It's He's not angry with Solomon because Solomon wasn't perfect. He's not angry with Solomon because Solomon didn't 100% of the time keep all of the commandments. It's because he had turned his heart away. Isn't it an amazing thing that we worship a God who is willing to judge us not just by what we do, because all would be condemned because nobody's perfect except for one, Jesus Christ. Gratefully, he also judges us based on the desires, the intents, the, the focus of our heart, even though our actions may not always um, reflect that very well. Um, to end this story today, I, I want to share a, a personal, a little more anecdotal experience. Um, recently, I had, I had fallen short. I had not been the kind of husband that I need to be with my angel bride, and I had caused some pain, and I was very frustrated with myself, and I was feeling very discouraged, and I was driving home from work, feeling feeling pretty down, having this weighing on my, my mind and my heart, and the image came to mind of me sitting in our front room with a guitar that my wife had given me for Christmas because we'd been talking. I said, yeah, I'd like to learn the guitar with, with one of our daughters who's learning it, and uh, I, I'm not very good at it, but I can play the piano, I can sing, I know music, and I'd like to maybe learn the guitar, so she gave me this guitar for Christmas. When I first got the guitar, I can read the music. I know the ideal. I know how it should sound. And I pick up the guitar, and my brain sees the music, I interpret it, and I tell my fingers what to do. I know I can see the tablature for the guitar, where my fingers are supposed to go, and my brain tells my fingers to do that, and my fingers don't do that. And it's frustrating me. I'm like, ah, oh, this is so hard. I'm trying so hard, but it's not working. And this image of me struggling on the guitar came to mind, followed by a simple question. Are you going to stop practicing? Are you going to give up because you've messed up? You know the ideal, and you're trying to do the ideal, and it didn't come out right. So are you going to stop practicing? Are you going to keep going? Brothers and sisters, that changed everything. I'm clumsy still. 
but I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep practicing, and every day is a new day to turn heavenward and to turn to those who are our loved ones who will help us connect with heaven and to the living prophets who give us his direction, the sheet music, the lessons of how to play, and we just keep practicing and practicing and practicing until that day when you don't have to think about it as much. Your fingers will instinctively do what you're hearing because you've tuned your heart and your eyes and your whole soul to God, and you're asking him to be your God, and you promise to be his people, and you say, I'm going to strive for that connection. Don't ever give up on practicing. Today's a new day. Tomorrow's going to be a new day. You're going to keep struggling. You're going to keep messing up, but keep practicing and keep tuning your ears to the Lord and to his prophets and through studies of the scriptures, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.